episode of a slice of medieval which is a Derek and Sharon special. <laughs> Today we're going to look into the life of a woman who if it wasn't for her I might not be where I am. Christine de Pizan, the first woman ever to make a living out of writing. So a brief introduction to Christine de Pisa. She was born in Italy in Venice in about 1364. Her father whose name I didn't write down here. <laughs> Thomas. Thomas Thomas was um, offered a place at the French court of Charles V as his astrologer and physician. So at the age of about four, Christine and her entire family moved to France. Unlike many women of the time, she was educated. Her father made sure that she could read and write and was educated in history, languages and rhetoric. And she was given basically the same education as her brothers which she must have been very grateful for later in life because it actually gave her the chance to sustain herself when she lost her husband. So she was the first woman to make a living from writing. Uh, Most other female writers at the time were nuns, so they didn't have to sell their work. She wrote in defence of her sex, which I think is brilliant. She was an intrepid advocate of female honour. That's how somebody described her. That's a good way of looking at it. She's often looked at as the first feminist, but she wasn't really a feminist because she was writing on her times and she didn't advance new theories or anything. She just wrote in defence of women. Yeah, I think um, when she went when she went to Paris, obviously she was very young to start with, but, but in those years when she was growing up, she had access to an exceptional array of books of all kinds of books philosophy romance all sorts of things so Mm -hmm. I guess she had better access to books than almost any other woman uh, at the time and not only that she had the the interest and the, the the eagerness to learn because it's all very well being exposed to all those books but if you just look at the row of covers on the dusty shelves, then nothing happens. But she wanted to get into those books. And and that, I think, is is a big factor in her ability to write later on. Yeah. And to write such diverse things as well. She wrote for she wrote what she was commissioned for rather than a particular thing. She could write on any subject anyone asked her to write on. But that's because, like you say, she was incredibly well read from an early age. The other thing that surprised me, I mean, she was, you, you talked about her husband. She was married when she was 15, or about 15, to Etienne de, de Castel, who was a, uh, one of the king's, the French king's secretaries. Now, many times during these podcasts, we've talked about arranged marriages and, you know, tough for the, for the young girl and so on. But this appears to have been a pretty happy marriage. Well, mm. a very happy marriage. 
I would say. It was arranged. Her father arranged the marriage. Yes. But it does, um, yeah, she does appear to have been happy and he actually encouraged her to continue in her studies. Yes. You'd think that getting married at 15, that would be it. That's the end of your studies and that's it. You're a wife now. But he knew the value of study. And he'd been at the University of Paris, I think it was, yeah. before getting the job with the king. Um, so he knew the value of study and he actively encouraged her to carry on in her studies, which probably made for a happier marriage as well, because they could talk about things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They were both they were both uh, scholarly yeah. in a sense. So they had that in common. And I think you're right. I mean, there are several factors we've already mentioned which make her remarkable. Her level of education, thanks to probably her father more than anyone else. In fact. I read that her mum actually disapproved of her being educated, wanted her to learn the womanly ways rather than scholarly. Yeah, that that's pretty normal, though, isn't it, mm. for the period? I mean, which, again, only emphasises how extraordinary she was in the period she lived in. Yes. And and as you said, it was it was unusual for the husband to be supportive in that, that sort of area of learning. That wasn't something a girl or a woman was encouraged to be involved in at all. No. Why would they need to to do anything scholarly, you know? So it, she was remarkable in a number of respects there. But then it, it all sort of goes wrong, doesn't it? It does. Charles V dies and in 1380, I think, and her father loses his job. He then dies in 1387 and her husband dies in 1390 so suddenly in 1390 she's there with she and Etienne had three children and two survived to adulthood so in 1390 she had at least two children she was looking after her aging mother and her niece and the family were in financial difficulties as well because her father had lost his job they were in some debt by the sound of it and one of the first things she has to do is rearrange the finances yeah one of the bits i read was that she wrote about the fact that women should actually know what the family finances are and what the family administration is and how to do it because then if something mm. happens to your other half you can sort it and she said women shouldn't yeah. remain in ignorance of um of the family issues yeah, and I mean, her father's estates, I think, were tied up in litigation as mm -hmm. well. And she had that sort of hanging over her when she became a widow. So she had no no income to speak of at all. And I guess uh, the usual thing for a widow to with young children to do would be to remarry. Yes. That would be the solution, wouldn't it? To, to find somebody else to provide for you. That was what most, well, the majority of women would do in the medieval mm -hmm. period. And would be encouraged to do. It would be assumed, I guess. Yeah, it's what was expected. It's for a lot of women, it was the only way out. If the family were in debt and her lands were tied up in litigation, she was hardly an mm. attractive marriage prospect yeah. anyway, was she? The new husband would not be just taking on the two children. He'd be taking on the legal battle to get everything, to get um, her lands yeah. back. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other option would be to become a nun, but then when you've got two children depending on you, your mother depending on you and your niece depending on you, yeah, that's not an option unless you couldn't care less. Yeah, but I mean, even so, and even bearing in mind, as we'll see later on, the, the quality of what she wrote and how she wrote it, 
even with all of that, it's still a stretch for a woman. I mean, it's a stretch for a man almost, but at that time to decide Mm. to become a writer. I mean, it's a stretch in the modern world to decide to become a writer. It's not exactly the most reliable source of income. It wasn't, I'll become a writer straight away. It was she started working for the various manuscript workshops in Paris as a copyist. Yeah. Um, So she was copying out manuscripts rather than writing her new ones. Yeah, and I think that's a good point because she had the technical skills to produce books. Yeah. Which, again, well, 99.9% of women would not have had necessarily. So she had that as well. That, that, that combination of skills and attributes and abilities she had is, is pretty unique, I think. The interesting thing is that she, the first things she wrote were essentially poems. Mm. And what I did come across was that the first poem she wrote tended to be about lost love. Yeah. And it suggested that this is an indication of her, that the loss of her husband and how how much impact it made on her. And therefore, people say, write what you know. And mm-hmm. that was something that she felt that she knew that was that she could write about, which is interesting because that's how she she got into it in a way. And these poems were shared around, I suppose. Yes. The whole idea is not that unusual that some people should read her poems and say, well, actually, I wish I could write something Mm -hmm. like that or I wish I could have something like that written for me. And that's where it it changes from her writing something to her being asked to write something, commissioned to do it. She did write poems and she sent them to members of the court. Yeah. I got the impression that the first ones were unsolicited and she sent them out just to see what people would think of them. And anybody who liked them sent her a little money as a thank you. Exactly, yes. Do do you think that that was deliberate in the sense that she thought, well, I'm going to send these out and see what I get? I mean, it was kind of, it wasn't unusual for you to be paid for something after the event, was it? No. So in that time... It was like, well, if, if I don't send any out, I'm not going to get anything. Yeah. If I send some out and I pick the kind of people, the ones who who commission literary works, who patronise yeah. um, writers, then you never know. They might patronise me. It's like sending out um, query letters, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. These days, yeah. you know, you just hope somebody will get back to you and say, actually, I really enjoyed that. Or, you know, here's a, enough to buy yourself a cup of coffee because I enjoyed that. And so yeah. it's the way to get started. And of course, her ability to copy meant that sending several copies out mm. of the same poem was not for her as difficult as it might have been for somebody else. Yeah. And of course, we're talking about before the age of the printing press. So, yes. so everything had to be written by hand. It's at the start of the Renaissance as well. Yeah. So there's this explosion in the love of learning. And she she was very lucky in that at that time, women as well as men were looking at um, patronising writers and artists. And, you know, they were making courts appear more sophisticated. Yeah. So they wanted more of it. Yeah, it's it's kind of like Netflix wanting more more material <laughs> because <laughs> they'll be bigger and better for it. People like mm. the, the the Dukes of Burgundy and the French Court and so on. The more they could show the scale 
of their their courts, the reach of it, and literature was part became part of that, yeah. as you say. And she she targeted certain individuals, yes. the Duke of Burgundy being one, other members of the French court who she thought might be patrons. Mm. So that's how it started. That's how it started. But if one was, we won't, but if if one was to look at the, the end product uh, in her later years, there isn't necessarily a reason why how you could draw a line from one to the other. Writing sort of courtly love poems isn't really the same as the kind of things that she wrote a little bit later. Yeah, but she didn't just write poems. She did write prose as well that she sent out initially. Yes. And yeah. like you say, yeah. I mean, the thing is, her versatility is really impressive. Exactly. She wrote in yeah. a very wide range of genres, literary debates. I've actually written the list. Courtesy manuals, lyric poetry, treatises on chivalry, biographies of kings and books of pious devotion. And she wrote 10 volumes of verses. <laughs> She wrote a biography of Charles V, didn't she? Yes. She, um, she, yes, she was commissioned by the Philip of yeah. Burgundy, yeah. Um, who was Charles V's yeah. brother, to write his biography, which seems to have gone down really well and also very much put her on the map for um, other commissions. Yeah, Isabel of Bavaria was, was, another, was another one who she targeted to, for support. And, and I think what we get is a moment or almost a sort of moment where she she decides to weigh in on a, a, a controversy, a debate that's going on at the time in the late 14th century about a 13th century poem mm. called uh, Le Roman de la Rose, which is basically... A, a poem about yeah. love, which draws a certain image of women in doing in in telling its 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 story, as it were. And mm. there's a literary debate in the late 14th century and and beyond about uh, this particular work, this 13th century poem. And she kind of gets involved in that debate. And and it seems to me, and I may be wrong, but it seems to me that her involvement in that debate is where it switches from being about courtly love, about sort of mundane matters in a way, mm. the life of Charles V and so on. And, and it flips into being more of a defence of women. That's where it seems to start to me. Yeah, the argument is that women are what turns love and marriage sour, and it's the way yes. that <laughs> it's the way that women behave. It's all their fault, you know. We, the evil daughters of Eve, it's all our fault that men stray, marriages turn sour, and all that kind of thing. So she's like, decides that. Hold on a minute. Yeah, women are the problem. In other words. Yeah, <laughs> it's all it's all women's fault. Which which is of course. What the Catholic <laughs> Church was teaching at that time, and she she writes something called the letter of a letter of, of the God of Love, Cupid, in 1399, and that explored the role of women in society in a positive way, mm. ra rather than accepting this stereotype of women as the problem. 
the, the part of love that was the problem. Yeah. So she got involved in that, in that debate. Even that, in a sense, is remarkable, isn't it? That that this female writer. Yeah, that a woman would think to actually argue with men. Yes, <laughs> about women. <laughs> men, those, those clearly the experts on the subject of women. <laughs> that a woman would decide to actually argue about it <laughs> is, is phenomenal in that period. Although the men would probably say, see, that's what yeah. I said. She just yeah. <laughs> And then from there, we've kind of got, there's kind of a line in the sand, but but then she she develops that defense of women, doesn't she, in in her yeah. in her next works, which at the beginning of, of the uh 15th century, which which kind of present rather than sort of responding to a male view as such they kind of present a, an image of women a positive image of women and the and and the way women have contributed that's the thing i mean her the work that everybody most people have heard of the book of the city of ladies is just that it's when i was i was actually reading it, some of it yesterday i was thinking actually um Shameless plug here. This is Heroines of the Medieval World, the 15th century <laughs> version. <laughs> you know, I suddenly realised well, that's what I was doing with Heroines of the Medieval World. I was trying to show how versatile and strong women are by showing all these different types of women. And that's what she did in the book of the City of Ladies. And she, what yeah. is remarkable is she didn't just do the Christian saintly women. She did women from antiquity, pagans, Christians, Jews. I mean, this was in the early 15th century. This must have been a real definitive moment, you know, people reading this. And it's like, oh, she's including every type of woman, not just the Christians. And that didn't really get remarked upon in a lot of my research. But when I read it, it was like, wow. I think I read that that there are ninety two women mm. mentioned. Now, now some of those are mythical. Yes. So I mean, they're not all historical, but a lot of them are historical. And um, the amount of research she must have done, I suppose, to to come up with all all the. That these particular individuals. There were a couple of books she actually used herself. Well, she used uh, Boccaccio to some extent. Yes. Giovanni Boccaccio's work. There was Boccaccio and another one. I mean, I think his views on women might have been rather different from Christine's. But any, any good writer will look at various sources. The other thing about the book of the City of Ladies that that struck me is that it's not anomalous. It's not she uses the literary styles of of her day mm. to present this. She yeah. uses the allegory of a of a city, mm. uh, imaginary city, and 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 using allegories was was very very common in that time period. So she's very much of her age. Oh, yeah. in in that style and she had to be in the sense that well, for people to read it and understand it and and grasp what what was going on she needed to use the styles they were familiar with reading mm. and allegory is one of them and she doesn't do it as a criticism of men she does it as a promotion yes. of women yes that's that's important i think isn't it yeah she's highlighting the attributes of women and 
showing how they can be useful to society and how they have helped society develop over the centuries. It's like, look, this isn't men couldn't do it without us. This is what women have helped with without saying it wasn't just the men. It's, this is what women have done. This is what women have achieved and helped with. This is why we are where we are today. Yeah. Because there were strong women in the past who helped us get here. Yeah, and it it is still rebutting the basic idea that women were innately a problem, were not of of value mm. except in certain specific areas of 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 life. And what she's saying is, well, look look at all these women; they've done all these things. Yeah. And also, she's advocating the education of girls and women mm. as a means of improving society even further. Because you say, well, look what they did. And if we were to promote and educate women more generally, think what could be achieved. I think that's very basic to her ideas mm. because she 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 connects female education to good governance. Yes. She said she makes the point uh, in several of her works that women are actually quite good at governing. Women are actually quite mm. clever at thinking of ways to do things. Yeah, it's like use them rather than just ignore them, you know. Yeah. Use the, their strengths. Harness that. Yes. As we talk about it now, we are acutely aware of how far ahead of our time <laughs> that whole idea was because we know what follows. We know mm. how the role of women doesn't develop in the centuries that follow. So it makes her yeah. writings, which are read by men as well as women. They're not just aimed at women, they're aimed at men as well. It makes her writings even more amazing for the time period. It does. It really does. And just by who she was herself, because she actually made a career out of writing. Yeah. She's actually practicing what she preaches. She's showing what women can do by doing the writing in the first place. Yeah. I mean, she she kind of, she writes well, a number of sequels to The City of Ladies, but one of them uh, she dedicates to Princess Margaret of Burgundy, mm. not the Margaret of Burgundy that, that is regent in Burgundy later on, but one of, one of the daughters of the Duke. Yes. And um, her purpose in, in dedicating her work to, to young women is as a kind of, particularly in this, this work, which which is held up as a kind of a, a mirror for medieval women, it's to to help them, to guide them. Yeah, is it the Book of the Three Virtues? Yes, yes, yeah. And the Treasure of the City of Ladies, sometimes called, mm. which um, is a kind of handbook for young medieval yes. women. Yeah, and it was written to Margaret, and she was 11 years old. Yeah. And about to marry Louis of Guienne, the heir to the French throne. So the first part of it is like an instruction manual for her of how yeah. to be a good woman, a good wife, to be, you know, everything she needed to know to get on in the world. And you think, well, OK, she wrote this book and she dedicated it and gave it gave it to Princess Margaret of Burgundy. But, but so what? It's just one person. But often... These works were were mm -hmm. copied. She copied them a number of times, and they were they were distributed in various yeah. ways. Mothers would give daughters mm -hmm. copies of the books. They would daughters would marry into other foreign courts 
and would take these books yeah. with them. So there were plenty of ways, aside from specific commissions from other people, there were plenty of ways that her books had a wider audience. And also, um, we have to, I think it's really important to say, she, her, her books in her own lifetime were translated from the original French into English and Flemish. Yeah. So they did definitely go through beyond the borders. You know, they were translated so that they could go into Flanders and into England. And one of yeah. her patrons was the Earl of Salisbury. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, she's not just some parochial little writer who made a big a big life for herself no. and that's the end of it. She She was known elsewhere. These days, she would be an international best-selling author. <laughs> she would, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So um, pretty impressive when you think of how, compared to how easy it is with Kindle these days to get our books around the world and anybody in any country can download and read them. What she had to do to get her books just to England, she had to be well known. She had to write things that people were definitely interested in. Yeah. And she had to have the backing to get these books translated and sent over to England and to Flanders. I think it's fair to say in that period that no literature happened without the backing of someone who had money yeah. or, or status. It just didn't happen. Mm. It, it couldn't happen. And when you look at her patrons, Philip of Burgundy, the Duke of Berry, Isabel of Bavaria, the Earl of Salisbury, these were powerful, rich people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the centre yeah. of courts. Yeah. So at the centre of the French court, she had this contingent of people who were financing her and commissioning books and literature. What we should say is that, and she herself identified this as a factor in her popularity, was the novelty value. Mm. That the fact that you have an educated woman writing about all these things was in itself not just remarkable now, but was remarkable at the time. And it was it had a novelty value, yeah. which helped to get readership. So, And she was aware of that. But she did know her limits as well, which I find interesting. She knew what her audience would read from her. Yeah. And she wrote a book called Feats of Arms and Chivalry. Yeah. And she knew that nobody would read it if they thought a woman had written it. <laughs> so she published it anonymously. I think she knew her market that well that she knew. I can't put my name to this because nobody will read it if it says Christine de Pizan. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it's a worry in a way that um, it's not that long ago and it may still be the case that some female fiction writers don't yes. identify as women, uh, that they use their initials or whatever, or have done in the past. That's what I was going to say, <laughs> but yes. Because they feel that maybe men won't read their work, mm. but I mean, yeah, she was she was canny, wasn't she? She was, yes. she was clever in that sense, practically clever, as well as educated. They're not mm. the same thing. Um, very canny. But the other thing that I I found that impressed me was that her books, like many medieval books, were 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 often illustrated or illuminated, and she chose the illuminators and supervised what they did mm. so the whole production process she was involved in she wasn't just gonna leave it to somebody else and the illustrations and illuminations are are, are impressive in themselves yeah. uh, and, and necessary 
in a sense, to promote a book mm-hmm. in that time period as well. And if you were ever wondering how closely she was related to the French court, there is actually um, an image, I think it's on Wikipedia, of her presenting her work to Isabel of Bavaria. Yeah, yeah. Which is backing up everything. Yes, she was definitely there. She was definitely supported because somebody actually thought, I'll draw that. Yeah, it's it's so difficult now to assess what impact she had at the time. Mm. And we can talk about what impact her writings have had since. But at the time, it's a very small pond that she is sort of dropping a pebble into, isn't it? Yes. In the modern age, as you said, you've got Kindle, you've got the internet. These ideas can be transmitted around the world in in an instant. In her world, that, that couldn't happen. Yes, she was... She was well known that people in other courts knew who she was, knew that she was a writer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But her writings didn't change men's attitudes at the time. No. It's remarkable they were there, given the teachings of the church on the subject of women. But even so, they didn't change anything. Mm. They might have changed individuals' minds. I mean, obviously, she was aiming at rulers as well. So mm-hmm. they might have changed the minds of of some quite prominent people, but it doesn't translate into social change of any sort, does it? No. But, I mean, I think individually she'd have shown women what they could do and what they were capable of. But I think it's also, it's sad that she seems to have become irrelevant after the Battle of Agincourt in 1415 and with the renewal of the Hundred Years' War. Yeah. She starts writing about peace and bringing people together when everybody else is gearing for war. Well, I think there's a belief that there will be peace before Agincourt, and she's writing about Mm. peace then. And at Agincourt, there is then this uh, annihilation of large numbers of French gentry and and nobility. And that is is such a shock in France and and to her that I don't think she ever really recovers from that. No, it's interesting that the last piece she ever wrote in 1429, I think it was, Poem of Joan of Arc. Yeah. It's the only piece of literature written on Joan during her lifetime. So I think it's quite touching that it's Christine de Pizan who actually wrote it. It's a fairly sort of spirited piece of work about someone that she admired, clearly, Mm. as a sort of beacon of French courage and and womanhood and so on. But by then, she was in a a convent, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. And she wrote very little. She died the next year, so she was probably ill. I think she went to the same convent that her daughter was at. Yes, you can imagine her looking at Joan's career and going, that's what I was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you can, you can. And you can imagine her thinking, I've got to write this poem because this is the woman, this is what I was talking about with womanhood and what women could achieve. So I can't not write something about Joan of Arc. Yeah, her writing career sort of ends at that point. And uh, I think she she lives on to... 1430, I think she died. Yeah, 1430. 1430. 1430, yeah. So, I mean, after, after the Joan of Arc one, it's, there's nothing. And, and really all her earlier works, the big works, the... 
the defense of women works are all around sort of 1405 to 7 I think yeah. so there's that kind of productive period when her focus was on the defense of women arguing for a more positive role for women of what they could do in society and how valuable educating them would be for society mm. and then the hundred years war is revived and really that seems to kind of knock the stuffing out of her in terms of a willingness to write anything yeah i don't think it would have helped either that the french court was itself riven by divisions at the yes. same time you know charles yeah. the sixth was mentally ill Isabel Bavaria was trying to stay strong and hold everything together. But you had the Orleans faction, the Burgundy faction. There were so many different factions. Yeah, I, I think she would have seen, at that point, she would have seen France as kind of falling apart, mm. which it was at that point, yeah. really. But it also probably wasn't focused on patronising the arts as much either. No. So there wouldn't have been as much demand for her work or anybody's work when they're focusing on war. Yes. She wanted to have a legacy, didn't she? She wanted mm. her her books and her prose and poetry to be to be read by others. Mm in the future i think she achieved that when you think we're 600 years later and we're sat here talking about this woman who wrote literature poetry military handbooks you know, <laughs> yes i mean i don't know the answer to this question i don't know whether you do when we get to the sort of modern feminist movement whatever that actually is and i'm not commenting on it because i don't know um, but when we get to that and the origins of that, I guess, in the 1960s and 70s, do the likes of Germaine Greer and others, do they already know about the writings of Christine de Pizan or do people reflecting those ideas of feminism look back and find those writings? You see what I mean? Yeah. Do Christine de Pizan's writings inspire modern feminism? Or do people look back and say, oh, yeah, actually, she was saying that 600 years ago? I don't know the answer. No, I don't either. Um, I think that's one thing I'd have to have a look through Jermaine Greer's work. Jermaine Greer, if you're listening, perhaps you could let us know. Yeah. <laughs> I think today, yes, yeah. I think she does inspire. Certainly, I mean, I didn't really know about her. I'd heard of her before I wrote Heroines of the Medieval World, and she is in Heroines of the Medieval World, another shameless one. <laughs> but I only looked into her properly when I was writing that, and it's illuminating as to how much she was writing strong, positive things about women 600 years ago. And when you think we mm. had after her... We had the Tudors, Henry VIII murdering his queens left, right and centre. Harsh. He obviously didn't read Christine de Pizan. But what was interesting was when I was reading up on the Tudors, certainly Elizabeth I knew of Christine de Pizan mm. and was reading Marguerite of Angoulême as well. Yeah. Women in the Tudor times were looking for this kind of literature to help them make sense of themselves. Yeah, I mean, I would have thought for Elizabeth I that the writings of Christine de Pizan would have been right up her street. Yeah. That would be something which helped her to explain her own position to herself, mm. to find a, a sort of path, as it were. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's important to note that that is actually what she wanted to do. That's why she wrote these books, so that women would know how strong they were. Yes, yeah. And that 
has to be the takeaway from it that she's telling women, look, you can do this. You are strong. Yes, you live in this society. And there's there's not a point in any of her books where she tells people to change society. No. She's actually telling women to make the most of the society they're in and to make the most of their own prospects rather than other people's. Yeah, I think we should say, and we haven't said it anywhere else, I don't think, during this talk but we should say that she wasn't just concerned with princesses she addressed her books the ideas about women yes. to all classes of women right right down to prostitutes she addressed all women not just noble women yeah but at the same time she knew that the only women who could read were the noble women yeah yeah that's what i was going to say she, she didn't expect her words to reach them, mm. but she included them, which I think is, is significant in itself. Yes, she's talking to all levels of society, even though she knows the lowest levels won't be able to read it themselves, but they might hear of it. And if the higher levels see their own strengths in it, then it goes further down. You know, maids in households will hear the ladies talking about it and discussing it, and they will take it home to their mothers and and sisters and it will pass through the levels of society like that and i guess when we were talking to Anne o'brien about paston letters got a good example there of strong women who who are involved in mm. the, the lives of their their menfolk in a very significant way but they're the ones writing about it as well yes so it's not just involvement and using women in 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 positive way but it's also the fact that women are actually recording it they're writing about Mm. which would have pleased Christine de Pizan, I think. Yes, I love the way she does confront misogyny in her writings. She's always aware of the fact that she's got to be able to sell these books. Men have got to be able to buy them as well. So she has to confront the misogyny in a way that doesn't upset her patrons and doesn't make them look too closely at themselves yeah. and see themselves in it. So I think that's why yes. she concentrates on the women, the strength and power of the women, rather than the men blaming women for everything yeah she was very aware of what she could get away with mm. and she couldn't just write anything no. she couldn't write necessarily exactly what she thought she had to as you said frame everything in a way that was acceptable to men as well as women and that does change it does kind of dilute possibly what she wrote mm. does make you wonder what she left out <laughs> <laughs> yes if only we knew what she would have said if she'd had the chance to just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, she comes across though as quite a positive individual, doesn't she? Yes. Until those later years, I think, as I said earlier, I think the Hundred Years' War takes its toll on her. Yeah. But I think in her early life, she meets setbacks and she has some pretty big setbacks. She meets those head on and sort mm -hmm. of rises above them. And it's pretty impressive when you think about it, because she was what, about 25, 26 when her father died, mm. not yet 30 when her husband died, left with having to look after everybody and never having worked a day in her life until that point, always having men to look after her yeah. and, and suddenly finding that they haven't been looking after the finances as well as they should have done. So they've left that to her to handle. She's also got to get some money in to feed the family. And yet she's still writing positively. And she's not criticising her husband for leaving her in this state. She's mourning his loss and writing about how much she loved him. Yeah. It's all on a positive light. It's all of 
working a way forward. What amazes me, and, and, and we use the word extraordinary a lot about people, but I think what makes her extraordinary is that she could have said, right, th these love poems are a nice little learner and carry on doing this forever. Mm. She could have done that. Yeah, Mills and Boone pays well. <laughs> you know, they sell well. <laughs> And no one would have said anything, any any criticism of her because that that was what a woman could do. She could, she could that's the most she could do. But but it wasn't. She didn't stop there. She didn't satisfy herself just with courtly love. She moved on to far more. Yeah wide-ranging and, and serious aspects of society. That, for me, is the extraordinary thing. Offering the rebuttal to the Roman de la Rose yeah. um, system yeah. and actually formulating an argument and having the strength of mind. Remember, the men she's arguing with have been to university, you know, they've been through yeah. academia, something that she'd never been able to do because she, simply because she was a woman. But she's actually feels strong enough to argue with them, to put her point forward and follow it through and say, look, this is what women can do, what women are capable of. Yeah, and it, and, she do, and she does follow it through because yeah. the later works that we talked about, the City of Ladies and so on, that's a, a strong, independent mind at work mm -hmm. that ignoring the fact that some men will put her down because she's a woman and saying, yeah, OK, but yeah. this is what I think. <laughs> Um, it's, yeah. it's quite remarkable mm, Extraordinary An incredible woman who To be honest If she hadn't done that Maybe I wouldn't have been able to write The books I've been able to write Because she started it for women You know Started making money It's her fault It's her fault Yeah <laughs> Her fault I write my books It's a good one Thank you <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed that Thank you very much Derek I really enjoyed talking about Christine Peace And I hope Everybody has learned something. Thank you very much for joining us on today's A Flight of Medieval. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with what promises to be a fantastic, fascinating discussion on the Lady Ethelfled, Lady of Mercia, with the wonderful writer Annie Whitehead. Thank you for listening. I've been Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. Thank you very much for listening today. And if you enjoyed our podcast, why not subscribe? to ensure you don't miss the next one. Goodbye.